from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Philadelphia PA, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios looking out onto... University of Pennsylvania's Locust Walk on a gray, overcast, slightly cool, but not too bad spring morning. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy at the moment, just my buddy, Eric Bradlow, collaborator of mine for the last three plus years, fellow faculty colleague here at Wharton. Audie Weiner is going to roll in here momentarily. Shane Jensen is not going to roll in here. Shane is out and about doing Shane Jensen things, but some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. If you're listening 8 to 10 Eastern, you're hearing us live. We do that every week every week on Wednesdays, and then we are replayed a few times over the course of the week. If you want to join the conversation, we always welcome that. Give us a ring, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Matt Johnson, our producer, will take your phone call. If you'd rather email us than phone, you're welcome to do that as well. You can email us businessradio at sirusxm.com businessradio at sirusxm.com Matt will pick up your email live if you want or if you're listening one of the times we're replayed you can catch us by email drop us a note then we often pick them up and cover them on the air by the way we are off the ground in the social media age it only took us three years to get there but if you want to follow us at Twitter our handle at WMoneyball at WMoneyball Posted some horses last week, posted some horses, and if you were inclined to take our advice, which isn't necessarily a good idea, might have paid off for you. Eric, good morning. How are you? Speaking of horses. Well, I sort of had something going uh, in the horse race. It actually made me think, uh, first of all, good morning. It made me think about um, loss functions, not because I lost, which I did, but because of the way I chose to bet and the discussion I had at the time. So uh, Jeff Cedar from EQB Studios, uh, horse racing, uh, definitely gave us three horses. Um, I picked one of those horses, uh, looking at Lee. Looking at Lee actually performed quite well in the race, lost by two lengths, was a 50-5-1 to five to one long shot to win the race. Actually, it was the longest shot to win the race, came in second. I had a discussion with my cousin at the time, you know, maybe we should just bet these horses, these really long shots, win place or show, you know, diversify yeah. our risk yeah, a little yeah, right. bit. And he's like, no, come on, if it's the horse going to win up. the race, let's load up. <laughs> And you know it cost me thirteen hundred dollars. I mean it was it was only you know it was a modest size, but it was a fifty dollars bet big. on the race. They were paying twenty six to one for show for second place, um, and I'm not going what, to. What make, were they paying for place? It was something like, you know, went to twenty six, probably like ten to one. Okay, and and you probably wouldn't have stopped at show if you if you didn't if you bet beyond win, you were probably going to bet any of the first three positions. Yes, yeah, so, but the horse came likely. in second. So you would have paid that number. Would have paid, okay. would have paid that number. Okay. So, but again, it just, as a statistician, it just makes you think, even if you believe that the market is way underplaced, you've got to reflect uncertainty in the choices you have. And so, I'm not, by the way, Jeff didn't say the horse was going to win the race. He said the horse was going to perform well in the race. Well, first, second, or third out of 21 horses is performing pretty well in the race. So, so by the way, I, I, I wasn't here for that conversation. I assumed that he was recommending horses based on their value relative to market price. No. That would be a nice thing to do. But no, he was doing what Jeff Cedar correctly always does. He's saying he's actually, you know, put every one of these horses through a scanner 
and said, which horses have the biological makeup? The actual Okay, then you should like him even better because the horses that he named were all relative long shots. They were in the bottom that is five correct. or seven horses in the draw. That is correct. And I did like them. All right. And I did like them. And, uh, you know, had I bet on all of them to win place or show, I'd been having rings and chains on me today. I would have been, <laughs> you know, amping up the jewelry today. But unfortunately, I went, you know, again, I didn't diversify the way I over was overconfident in the uh, advice may be given to us, and I should have diversified the risk a well, little so bit more. Part of it might have been the psychology of betting. People like long shots. It's it's more fun to put right. a little bit of money there on the possibility of making a lot. There's something psychologically satisfying about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And, of course, the opposite would have been, had I bet on win, place, or show, and the horse had won the race, I'd be saying to myself, Damn it, I shouldn't have wasted some of those odds. By I knew the horse was going to win, what, not place or show. I, I know. It's easy to say this after the fact, but I wrote you after the race and said, hey, you know, with these long shot kind of, you know, money ball-esque plays, it probably makes sense to just bet them to win place or show because, the, you know, they're, they do things like this. And again, this is, sounds a little bit like we're making sense of it after the fact, but they perform better than expected, but that, and that that should be enough to pay off. So that's, that's what you're looking for. You don't need for them to win to demonstrate that Cedar, Cedar had something, you know, some insight there. I that's what I said. He didn't say the so, horse so, was going to so, win but, the but, race. But, he said the horse was going okay, to perform so we well. Need, we need a tighter translation from from that analysis way, into action next year. It was an exciting two minutes in sports, or two it's minutes one of the and best three two minutes, two minutes and three seconds. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, just before the race to get amped up in the Bradlow household, I watched the movie Secretariat. You know, which was by the way. A beautiful movie, and again, the reason I bring it up is still to this day the fastest time at the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont is still owned by the same horse from 1973. That's remarkable. It's remarkable that Secretariat continues 44 years later to have the best. Why time. is it that human performance continues to evolve and horses don't? I. I don't know. Let's let's get an, let's get someone that studies biological science on this. It's a great question for our fans. Maybe one of our fans here on Wharton Moneyball at one eight four four Wharton knows the answer to this. I don't know, but you would think forty four attempts to break the times at every one of those tracks. I, I don't know. Maybe yeah, to, Secretariat was just a five standard deviation out horse, right. not a three standard deviation. Three standard deviation events get broken. Five standard deviation events take 10,000, 100,000 replications to get right. broken, not 100, 150. Maybe Secretariat Maybe. was just a five sigma yeah. horse, and right. five sigma horses happen once in a life, once in my lifetime. But obviously, we could we could broaden our lens to see whether horse racing more generally has evolved or plateaued. While you know, again, you know, we're talking about marathon runners trying to break two hours now. Right, it's clearly continuing to evolve, and certainly has over the last forty years. Even if Secretariat was a five-center deviation or four-center deviation outlier, you could judge the field to find out whether the field has been evolving or continues to plateau. That's, uh, well, we've talked this many times. Our colleague Shane Jensen has always talked about the 1999 Pedro Martinez season and why it was so exceptional because you don't compare him to the 2017 pitchers. You compare him to the pitchers of his era. So how many standard deviations was he beyond not only just the field but even the second-best pitcher in baseball? Yeah. And so that's amazing. And also what's amazing, we talk about fatigue and training all the time on the show, obviously with our buddy Rick Peterson, many others. He set the best time in three consecutive races. Yeah. So it's not just that he said, well, I'm going to give it to the Derby and I'll just laze it in on the Preakness and the Belmont. 
He set the best time ever in all three in, right. in like in a four week period. Right. How do you do that? Right, Eric. What else about the Derby? Anything else jump out to you? Are we looking at a possible triple crown? I mean, this is this comes kind of comes up every year. Essentially, no one was raving. People liked this horse ahead of time, but no one thought this was a clear favorite ahead of time. No, well, always dreaming. No, it was the favorite, but not a clear favorite. Well, it wasn't the favorite until like that Just day. That, you know, I agree, yeah. until that day. But it was in the mix of the yeah. top three or yeah. four horses. And again, something interesting. I, I read an article about it yesterday. Apparently, six straight derbies have been won by the favorite, yeah. which is interesting. because the, But the part of the story I found interesting, which relates to Wharton Moneyball, is they were saying... These are horses being evaluated at two, two and a half years of age. They're three-year-olds running the race. The fact that there'd be any precision in kind of the betting markets and in the evaluation, the article just said, is fairly remarkable. You'd think mm-hmm. there'd be, if I could use the word randomness, you'd think there'd be more randomness in evaluation. So that's what caught my eye. The sixth straight year, the, whether it's the wisdom of the crowds, which of course is influenced by the rankings and the, bet- and the pre-existing markets, got the horse right. Again, yeah. and so that to okay, me. Okay, now are we overdoing that? Because look what happened to the rest of the field. Like, for example, consider your boy looking at Lee. How do his odds change going into the Preakness now? Well, let's assume. By the way, so Preakness had a, he, looking at Lee had a great race. He 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 came flying out of the pack late. And he beat third place by a good four or five lengths. Yeah, actually, just to be clear, though, looking at Lee was actually leading the race for the first, oh, between, like, say, the second, whatever they call it, uh, furlong. That's, that's interesting, because no, looking to, at watch, Lee was to watch a, him look like he, because separation happened, that means he was slowing down less, he, less As slow. Jeff Cedar even says, <laughs> yeah. they all slow down who's slowing down the most. Yeah, no, no, yeah. looking at Lee led up until, what do they call it, the turn, and then always dreaming took the lead, and looking at Lee, though, kept up and passed yeah. a few other no but yeah. look, I, at one point I was like can they end this race now please <laughs> now looking at Lee led for okay so do we, update, the do, do, do we think they got that wrong and in fact he will be one of the contenders for Prignus that's a great question it, you know it gets to our how much do you update based on one race I would have to believe that you know if it's if he was 50 plus to one for the derby I gotta believe You'd have to say it's, he's at least in the middle of the pack now, mm-hmm. assuming he's going to run the Preakness. Yeah, I haven't they, seen they the Preakness lineup. Pre- they don't always run him. We know always dreaming is going to run the Preakness. So we always have, is it three weeks between? Two. The, two this time and three next time? That is correct. Okay, two weeks to the Preakness and then three after that to Belmont. So two is pretty quick. That'll be fun. So next week we'll be talking about Preakness odds. We'll and, be talking about good. Preakness odds. All right. So we have a phone caller from Chicago. Paul. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for taking Thank you very much, John, for taking my call. Of course, of course, of course. What do you um, got? Uh, well, I wanted to follow up on the discussion from last week regarding the Joe DiMaggio hitting streak. Yep. Um, and I can't. I, I I've I've had a whole week to to uh, look at this, but and I can't I can't come up with the exact date. But during that time, the Yankees played an exhibition game against one of their farm teams, and in that game, DiMaggio went over four. <laughs> All right. All right. Now, um here's here's something else. Uh you know, considering um uh that and you know, your comparison with Williams, do you know who has the all-time lifetime best on-base percentage? Mm, good question. In who's, baseball? Who's that? That would be uh uh Ted Williams. Mm. Yeah, I mean and cons- Yep, I would guess it would have been Ted Williams. It would have been probably either a Ted Williams or Babe Ruth. Only, well, it has to be Ted Williams because I looked at the data literally just yesterday about because I was looking at ops on base plus slugging, which I'll talk about a little later in the show. Yep. And 
Babe Ruth is number one, fractionally above Ted Williams, and I have to believe Babe Ruth has a much higher slugging than Ted Williams. Not that yeah. Ted Williams was any slouch, but he had to have higher. So that, that's a good stat to know. Yeah, mm-hmm. Ted Williams yeah, had a was, remarkably uh, Williams high. Was, Williams was 482, which is almost every other time he's getting on base. Wow, right. And considering his batting statistics, and he took time out for uh, to get activated during the Korean War to fly, uh, for the Navy, for the Marine Corps, actually. Uh, do you know who uh, was his favorite person to fly with? That's interesting. I don't know. I'm going to guess it was. Was it some? Was it an actor? John Glenn. Oh, John really? Glenn. Wow, that's nice. Yeah, Glenn. Glenn loved flying with Williams, and I can only suppose that it was because, much like Chuck Yeager in World War II, Yeager supposedly could see uh, German fighters uh, at over 50 miles. Ah, that's interesting. So, Paul, yeah. th- thanks, for, thanks for ringing in. That's an interesting observation Paul makes. We have learned over the years on this show that one of the things that differentiates baseball hitters is their vision. It's just something as practical and as physiological as that. The best hitters tend to have better vision, and here we are comparing it to pilots as well. Well, what's, what's, what Paul's comment also cues up, obviously, as you know, we're having Rick Ankeel on the show, which who obviously transferred from a pitcher to an outfielder. It's like... It gets me, Paul's uh, comment made me think about how transferable are skills. Like, is his vision in baseball transferable in some sense to his vision as a pilot? Like, right. what most people say he was the, you know, Ted Williams was the greatest in everything. He was the greatest fisher, fisherman ever. Actually, a lot of people say he was the greatest fly fisherman ever. Yeah, and they asked, really? Yeah. Ted what, Williams what was is, known as, well, I'll tell you, yeah. he, you compete in competitions. No, but and I'm people, like, what, what might be the connection, if anything? Hearing I mean, and vision. He could, you know, I don't want to say he could see the fish. I'm not trying to make it seem like the guy can, you know, has x-ray vision underwater or something. But you could imagine he's got a skill set that he can leverage for lots of different things. Concentration, vision, etc. All of those might apply to being a pilot. They could apply to being a fisherman, you know, sound, motion, etc. So the, the second of our big... Baseball historians just walked in the door, our colleague and friend and collaborator here, Audie Weiner. And now I have a question for you guys. Y'all have just... It's good to be here, by the way. Thanks, Audie. Well, glad to have you. Y'all have just uh, piqued my interest in a new direction. Is there a biography of Williams that's considered to be the best or most interesting? You know, that's a a tough question. I don't know the answer to it. He is, after all, a Red Sox. And despite our reverence for his ability on the field... (laughs) Actually, reading a biography, the, 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 the history, the history of the two organizations, the Yankees, of course, being the other, are so intertwined. I would have thought that it's hard to know much yeah. about I, the Yankees without no, kind I, of. I just read a wonderful book about uh, the uh, the best friends from that era, Williams and Bobby Doerr and Dom DiMaggio, um, and a trip that they made down to Florida to visit Ted Williams before he died. Huh. It was a beautiful book. Hmm. Um, Oldest living Hall of Famer, by the way, still alive, Bobby Doerr. Bobby Doerr. So, uh, the, the, I mean, it's, we usually we, we even use examples like that to talk about regression to the mean. So you'd say something like, if you see a guy at the top of his game as a baseball player, if you pick a guy who's one of the best hitters of all time, where do you expect him to stand on a unrelated, possibly somewhat related, but not perfectly related sport? Say 
fly fishing, you would say. Well, I was just saying a lot of people considered Ted Williams the greatest fisherman of all time. And, you know, Paul, our caller, just called in and talked about his ability as a pilot. And we were just trying to understand, like, what skills. Let's imagine he's got great vision, great hearing, great reflexes. How could those all help in a set of, let's say, correlated, not perfectly correlated sports? I mean, there are probably a lot of great baseball players that would be horrible fly fishermen, even if they put their minds to it. But well, it raises another question, Eric, and, and people talk about this when you're trying to, for example, recruit a player in, for, into your school or draft a player from college. We just came through the NFL draft. To what extent does it matter if the guy is a good general athlete? I mean, is it advantageous? You know, you take Pat Mahomes high in the first round. Do you like him because he's a really good jock? He, he seems like the kind of guy and has played other sports and is clearly competitive in other domains. Does that matter? Should it matter? The the only thing that I would say are two things, and I'd love to have one of our callers, again, thanks, Paul, for calling in at one eight four four wharton I'd love to have one of our callers do the following. Maybe there's someone that's a physiologist that knows this. You know, we talk about injuries all the time in sports. Um, there's a big issue right now that people that play multiple sports have a lower propensity over time to get injured because they're training different muscles in their body. So and they're to, not overworking one? Correct. And matter of fact, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that people that don't specialize in sports have a lower propensity for injury. So to me, since injuries are such a large part of sports and professional sports, it would be great to see data that looks at cross-training athletes who love multiple sports and to see it's not that they're better at any one sport, but they're likely to be able to perform because they're not injured. Well, actually, um, David Epstein, uh, who's written the book The Sports Gene, has actually considered that or looked at some data in that score that suggests that that is actually what is at work, that you are are less likely to be injured if you play multiple sports. He actually claims that it actually helps your prospects as a professional if you play multiple sports. The data is a little bit correlative, essentially. Correlative. Correlative. In other words, it's not. Correlational. 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 Correlative. Cor- they're they're both okay. Uh, really? Yes, they are. You learn um, a word um, every day. And from this and, and the instant the uh, the reason why is it is that the argument I think has to do with if you look at people who live in big cities where you can play a single sport all year round, which didn't used to be the case, but now is the case, and compare it to more suburban or rural areas where you really can't play one sport all year round. The athletes have to sort of cycle through. There seems to be a, an advantage f- um, due to that. Now it's not. We don't know why. Say it's yeah, way. It's correlation. Yeah. is that you don't know what causes it. You just see, you observe this phenomenon and it's likely to produce an, uh, an effect. Now, you mentioned the idea about about uh, relative strength and, and the cross-training of muscles. We actually had on our show a couple years ago or a year ago um, the guy who invented this called the Sparta Track System. And the principle behind that, and we use it here at Penn and a lot of uh, professional um, athletic teams and college teams use it. What they look at is, is for imbalances in mu- muscle strength. And when you have an imbalance in muscle strength, it's called caused by overworking one set of muscles related to specialization. Mm -hmm. Now, the other muscles you don't really need so much in your everyday activity, except when you do. Which can happen. You make a if you're a linebacker, you, you move up and down in a way that linebackers do. But occasionally, they need to do something different. And if they become imbalanced, it's likely to produce a tear or a mm-hmm. rip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Paul's comment also made me think. You also mentioned uh, Kate about regression to the mean. We have a player who will stay with baseball who's having a what appears to be a, a one of the great seasons of all times as of right now. 
I'd love to get. I always ask Adi to give mean, his wow. prediction. Early May, uh, one month yeah. in. Well, uh, he, he, they've played 32 games, so he's got a hundred. The person's got about 155 at bats right now. I'll give you their stats, and I, I always ask Adi, give me your prediction for his season-ending stats. How much are you going to shrink it back? So I'm talking about Ryan Zimmerman of the Nationals. Uh, I was just at the Phillies Nationals game the other day, but here's his stats as of right now. Again, he's played 32 games, so one fifth of the season, roughly. He's hitting 410. With 13 homers and 34 RBIs. So if you were to project forward, obviously your projection would still be 410, but he would have 65 home runs and 170 RBIs. And just to be also clear... If you were to fully linearly full, extrapolate. Uh, that's what we're getting to. <laughs> you mean if, no regression to no the mean. No regression to yeah. the mean. Also, just to let you know, the career best history of ops is Babe Ruth and Ted Williams. They're at about 1.15. His ops right now is 1.3. Wow. He's got a 448 on base percentage and an 852 slugging. So let's go through it. Downright Ruthian. Downright Ruthian, but it's one-fifth of the season. So 410 batting average, where are you putting him at the end of the season? 342. Okay, okay. talk Three. me through that. Talk yeah, so where, that. why 340? Okay, so 340 is a tremendously high batting average for the season. Just to throw that you out, just picked a, you just picked the I number picked you high, had in mind. A high, a high batting average. He's at four ten. In fact, now that I'm thinking about it, I probably is too high, um, and I probably should drop down to the three thirty. What's what's the average for major league hitters? Two eight, uh, two seventy, no, two eighty, two eighty. No, it's lower it's, now. It's gone down. The below average is going. You're you're thinking you're thinking back in the in the glory days. The home runs are going through the roof. Batting average is is, is Let's diminishing. say it's two seventy. It's actually about two. It's in mid two fifties now. Oh Mid two fifties. Wow, it was last year. So yeah. Call it two sixty. Well, okay. so I w- I thought you were going to do the math a little bit different. I thought the math you were going to do is let's say he still is having a good year, but he's not going to have an all time great year, and let's imagine he hits three hundred for the rest of the season. Yeah. Okay. Good. I've got a four fifths weight on three hundred and a one fifth yeah. weight. Then he's at three twenty five. That's mm-hmm. why I would have thought you would have regressed it back even further. That's why when or I said three forty, I said you know. Well that's no, too another high. way to say it would be <laughs> well, but then we do the math that I like to do on the show. So what would he have to hit for the rest of the season to make your three forty two right? He'd have to hit about three twenty. So if he hits three twenty the rest of the season, he's gonna end up in the three forties. Now Trout could do that and you'd predict it. But other than other than had home career. runs, so he's at thirteen home runs now, early low forties. I think that's more more corroborative of what he actually is capable of. Four ten is not it's not sustainable. So it's not right. It's it's so this way is the, this is an interesting it. distinction to yep. do it for two different stats is illustrative because it's going to exactly. say something about how noisy you think that stat is. Exactly. So Adi's saying he's going to regress the home runs less than he's going to regress the batting average because he believes the home run is a more diagnostic. Stat. And how yeah. about RBIs? I mean, we know 170 is, I'm going to say it's not feasible, but I mean, the all-time record's 190. I mean, 170 hasn't been. There was one a, season. There was one season. It might have been one of Bond season or Pujols or something. There was one season. Bonds, he walked too much. Right, there was that, one yeah. season of above 150 in like the last 30 years. Where do you put him for RBIs? 120? 125, yeah. So, guys, step back one to the home runs. Calibrate me for home runs. I got I got kind of screwed up, got imprinted and screwed up by the Maguire Sosa era, uh, and and you know I don't anymore know what a good home run season is. Well, I can tell you, uh, unless I'm wrong, I might be wrong. Maybe there was one player. I don't think since the heavy, you know, PED use era ended, there's even been one player with 50 home runs. Not even 50. Not even 50. Gracious. I don't. I, I. I'm pretty sure. I think if you look at the last five to seven seasons, there are no players. None. With 50 home runs. And we were seeing 65, 60, 65 yeah. I think the 70. over, un, what we are seeing is something a little bit different. We're None seeing, with 50. We're seeing more than ever above 20. 
way more than ever. That Correct. is off the charts. Second number, baseman or hitting second dingers. baseman hitting dingers. No, you're I mean, up little guys who no, barely. You're bringing yeah. up an interesting point: yeah. is that batting averages are getting lower, home runs are going up, but the upper end of the scale is not going no. up. It's just it's hard. Look, you remember the day we. George Foster led the league. 52. 50, 52. I can't believe George Foster. <laughs> we, were 50, shocked. we were shocked. We were shocked that he hit 50 home runs. Hank Aaron never hit 50 right. home runs in a season. Is ever. That, that not right? one single 50 home runs. Not one. Not one. He just played forever? Okay. Just, yeah, but he had 40 every season. Hank just Aaron has 40. the most beautiful career trajectory you've ever seen. All right. Starts at around 40, very quickly is about 45, every single year about 45, and as he declines, 41, 42, well, 39. Really? I wanna, That's uh, remarkable. And for 20 to 23 years. Well, let's talk incredible. about another. Do people pitch around him more over time? Or no. 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 Not really. I mean, he did walk. I mean, but the thing is, is that. You know, every year he was among the top four or five home run hitters, but he didn't have that bonds. My God, this is upsetting. How much he power also he for a way, lot what? of years had Eddie Matthews in the lineup right with right. him, which helped a lot. Okay, so what years did Aaron play? He retired in seventy three, seventy four. No, so. se- no, seventy. That was the year he broke the record. Right. So, so that, I think he started. He started after Mays. Mays started in fifty one. I would say 50, Aaron yeah. started in fifty four, fifty five. Yeah. Probably played till seventy six or seven. He played twenty three seasons. So he probably played. I till think he 70, was gone by twenty six. I mean, seventy six or seven. He was definitely out of that. This, these are things that are very. Well, he broke very the record simple. in seventy four. April April nineteen seventy four. That was my birthday. I remember April it well. eighth, nineteen seventy four. It was, Ruth, broke, it was Ruth's record at the time. Yes, it is. But actually, there's another stat for. Our baseball fans out there. People say Ruth held the record for, you know, 44 years. It's actually, I just read this in a book. It's not true. He held it for longer because when he hit his 120th home run, he that held the, the record. record. That's right. So he's actually <laughs> held the record for. Everyone says from the day he retired, yeah, but he held it for 15 years while he was playing. So he oh held my. it for Starting almost in 60 years. Or 1921, he broke, he broke the, record the record and he held the I record. Mean, when he started, he was hitting more home runs than most teams. So uh, Jackie Robinson, of course, broke the color barrier in baseball. But Aaron, he, he played for that long and through the 60s and into the 70s and became the champion home run hitter. I mean, he he. I have big memories. I was a kid. I have big memories of that being a racial racial issue. Well, of course. I mean, it, it definitely was. And I remember it vividly. I remember exactly where I was when I watched the game when he hit the home run. I mean, it's really? one of my vivid childhood memories. I remember him break. I remember the game. I That's remember awesome. the pitch. I remember him hitting the home run. I remember him. Sur- I, it's not just retrospectively. I've, obviously, I've seen the video a thousand times. I remember him circling the bases. I remember the people coming out of the stands and the guy trying to hug him as he's, he's running around the Atlanta. bases. At that time, yeah, exactly. So who, I only remember him playing for Atlanta. Who else did he play for? Well, he played for Milwaukee. He played for the Milwaukee, Milwaukee Braves. Braves. They were the, yeah. the Milwaukee Braves. When did they move? I, I'm going to say sometime in the 60s. 60s yeah. Sometime that's in the early to mid 60s. The, the, the world was but, shifting. But you talk okay. about someone with a beautiful trajectory. Just to wrap up, so I also thought about another player who's had that same, I'll call it, beautiful and maybe honest trajectory is Albert Pujols. So let me tell you his stats. So Albert Pujols is in his 17th season. It's hard for me to believe. Wow. He had 10 straight seasons to start his career. 10 straight, over 300. He's not had one since. He's had seven straight under 300. He had eight straight seasons to start his career with an ops above one. He's never had one since. This year, by the way, his ops, not his batting average, not his slugging, his ops is 660. His hey, ops is 660. Real, real but quickly, just can you remind non-baseball listeners? On on-base base plus slugging. Button. So we know what on-base percentage is. What fraction of the times that you have a plate appearance do you get on base? Yeah. So he just, the uh, caller Paul yeah. mentioned Ted Williams was at 48. If you had his hits plus walks, etc., 
he's on base so 48% ca- of the time. Career best ever was like 50-50, just below 50-50. And this, and, but now you're going to add slugging to it. What, is it. what happens when you add slugging? So, well, slugging good every, slugging is, between, is around 500-600. That's incredible slugging. Incredible slugging. And just to remind everybody what slugging is, if you get a double, that's two bases. Mm-hmm. So you take the total number of bases and divide by the number of plate appearances. So if you have a slugging of one, it means... You get one base for every time you come up to and the they, plate. They don't care whether it's a single every time or a home run every four times. That goes down as sl- the that same as slugging. That goes down as okay. the same slugging. So, but by the way, his career stats, 596 home runs, 1,840 RBIs, 2,859 hits, a 308 batting average, and a 961 ops. So I'm saying, you talked about beautiful career trajectory. I just happened to be looking because Pujols just hit 596 last night. I'm like, he has your classic, again, one could argue... His peak, and he was washed, to show you the difference between this and the PED era, he was kind of washed up by 31 or 32. He hasn't Which, had a historically great season since he was 31 or 32 years old. But that's unusual. Historically, outfielders in particular, or first basemen or slugger types, they but, tend to peak around 30, and then by th- it's 35 that they start to decay. But not him. But not him. He's gone down much, much more rapidly. But he hasn't had one of those... Uh, reversals, which which was the telltale characteristic mm-hmm. of the PDE era. Mm-hmm. So Eric and I and Shane and, and Justin Wolfers, we had exactly. wrote, written an article some time ago looking at, at Roger Clemens' trajectory, mm-hmm. which had a very strange up, down, up again, <laughs> and down again. Uh-huh. And Bonds has that exact same trajectory. And there's a whole number of hitters uh, who have exactly that pattern, that up, down, back, up again trajectory. And, and almost all of them are associated with the, with the PDE era. And so most of the, the right trajectory as you move up and then you move down. You don't mm-hmm. see this kind of turn, rapid turnaround, almost a, a, a surge to better than you've ever been when you're 38, and, 39. And just to be clear, we never said in our article that anybody used PED. All we were talking about, isn't it? Adi put it in the right framework. We talked about this person's trajectory being double-humped is not consistent with all of the other players That's who right. played a similar amount of games and had a similar amount of st- Let's call it player strength. Mm-hmm. Just it's an abnormal trajectory. You can read into that what you want, well, but that's an empirical fact. But Eric, we we, we have to be we stand back. What had come about? The reason why the research had come about was. Um, Clemens had some agents who were saying there's absolutely nothing in his career that even suggests that there's any evidence of PD. And we were looking for statistical anomalies. looking at, say, wait a minute, there's things. Guys, before we go to break, and we're about to go to break, did you watch the Sunday night game? I happened to turn the TV on. Y'all would be so proud of me while I was washing dishes or whatever. Sunday night baseball. How much of it did you watch? uh, Maybe not that much. Certainly less than was available to watch. So the Cubs, the Yankees went to Chicago, played the Cubs in Wrigley Field, which is a great thing. And then they just Evening game. decided to stay Cold. for a while. 18 innings later. Oh, setting a record for the number of strikeouts in a, in a major league that game. That was great. Uh, 48, I think it 48. was. 48. So what I watched was I watched uh, the Yankees take the lead, and I watched Ellsbury's home run to go up 4-1, to one, and I watched Chapman fall apart, mm-hmm. which was very disappointing. Um, I did go to sleep in around the 10th inning. But here's the, the, the finale. <laughs> my son's half a, the game. My son's in Israel, yeah. and he's a fanatic baseball fan. It's very They're seven hours ahead. Very hard for him to watch the game. He woke up in the morning, checks his scores in the morning, as he usually does sees the game still on and watches the majority of the game in the morning. <laughs> that's, I've done that for the Australian Open. That's about Me it. Me too. Oh, so, so, fellas, that's the first quarter. Uh, we we have more to go. We have three quarters to go. As a matter of fact, come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. 
Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Some combination of us are here this morning. It's Cade, Adi, and Eric. Shane is in East Asia, I believe, will be joining us. I don't know by the time summer rolls around, perhaps. You can join us if you'd like. You can give us a ring, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us, businessradio at com. businessradio at com. Our producer, Matt Johnson, will pick you up. We are rolling into the second quarter of a four-quarter show. This is a quarter where we usually bring in a guest. We are delighted this morning to have Rick Ann Keel join us. Rick is a former Major League pitcher and outfielder with the St. Louis Cardinals, among other teams. Played 11 seasons in the bigs. He's the author of a new book. Book's titled Phenomenon, Pressure, the Yips, and the Pitch that Changed My Life. Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. We're delighted to have you on. Where are you calling in from this morning, Rick? I'm down in Jupiter, Florida today. Ah, that sounds like a lovely place to be. It also sounds very baseball-y. What's going on in Jupiter right now? <laughs> well, the baseball team's left, so right now we have uh, fishing and golf. Ah. Right my <laughs> There's no extended spring training going on? Um, There is, but, you know, I don't pay much attention to it. No? So, Rick, we, you, you played you played through like 2013 or so. You've been working in baseball since, right? You're a studio analyst with Fox Sports Midwest. Is that right? Correct. So you're 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 doing games and paying attention to baseball. Yes, yes. it's not all fishing and golf. In other words, no, no, not at all. I mean, I would say that's that's the main hobbies here, and it's kind of a Florida lifestyle, especially here in Jupiter. Those are just the two main things that that happen during the summer. Got it, got it. Well, Rick, we we want to hear about the book, and we'd like to hear a little bit about how your experience was coming through uh, your your teenage years and then into into pitching. And then the big transformation into the outfielder. It's phenomenal that you've written this book. People know your history, and people know you. I think people who do know you, if if, if for nothing else, they know you about the pitch and the wildness. But there's so much more to it than that. And we're glad that you're telling your story. We want to hear a little bit about it. What was it like for you coming out as the number one prospect in high school? I mean, I think you've been in such extreme situations. The first of which was you were the top baseball prospect for years. You know, at the time, um, it was everything that I was working working towards and dreaming of. You know, as a young child or young man, um, you know, my dream was to make it to the major leagues. And now I'm on this path where it seemed like, you know, my destiny was coming true. And and it was, uh, you know, back then I really I would I felt invincible. You know, I just felt like mm. I was working hard. Everything was going so correct um, the way it should be or the way I felt it should be. And I just seemed like I was on that path to the big leagues, which is where I wanted to be. How did your arm feel back then? Because that's one of the things we talk about today, that the young pitcher's arms are practically falling off. Oh, great. Um, and, and and like I said at the time, you know, feeling invincible, I, I really hadn't had any adversity. I mean, you go into high school and then even those first few years in the minor leagues, um, you know, I, I just kept dominating at every level I, I went to. So with that being that way you know my confidence just kept growing and, and eventually when i did make it to the big leagues um you know i felt like i was supposed to be there and deserved right. to be well you know more than just being the top prospect at the time people compared you people thought you had some real like all-time greatness in you know, sandy koufax kind of stuff and so how, what difference do you think it made to have those kinds of accolades and to never have experienced adversity on the field whenever you finally did face adversity uh, you know, at the time, it just kept reiterating where I thought I was going and the path that I was on. When people compare you to that, it didn't. I didn't feel like it 
put more pressure on me. Okay. Uh, I don't think anybody would be able to put more pressure than I put on myself because in my mind, I want to be the best. Mm -hmm. One of the best that ever played the game or pitched in the game. So, Mm -hmm. you know, at the time, um, with those things being said, it just reiterated my feelings of, of what I was thinking, where I was headed, and what I thought about myself. Mm-hmm. So, Rick, this is Eric Bradlow. In the first quarter of our show, we talked about uh, athletes growing up playing multiple sports. Did you play multiple sports growing up? Because there's a lot of research and statistics that show that people that show mo- play multiple sports are less likely to get injured. When did you kind of either focus entirely on baseball, or did you play other things? No, you know, growing up down here in South Florida, I played baseball year-round. Um, I played a lot of other sports in the neighborhood, but not, not organized, you know, um, as far as organized sports go, baseball was really the only thing I played, um, and that you know, living down here in Florida, you can be, and, and I had, and I, and I do agree with the science. I understand what, you know, everything that's coming out and what's being said, as far as you can overdevelop in one way, um, you know, certain muscle groups that you're only going to use in that specific sport. You know, a lot of things, you know, another thing that I did a lot too is I surfed a lot. I grew up down here on the coast. Oh, wow. Um, and, and I think that, you know, it definitely helped in my, my, my throwing ability just because the shoulder, it's going to make your shoulder strong and out there paddling all the time. So I think those are one of the factors, you know, that helped me throw harder. Rick, uh, this is Adi Weiner. I, I'm, I'm amazed at your entire career, but when you were in high school, you were clearly a, a star pitcher, but what kind of bat did you have back in high school? I was a good hitter. Um, it, it just became, you know, I was a small guy, though, and I grew um, I grew after my sophomore year, and I went from throwing 84 to 94, just over a, over a year, just like that. And it just became clear that my fastest path to the big leagues was going to be pitching. But I was always a decent hitter. So, Rick, can you walk us through what happened in the playoffs there and what you were thinking about as as you seemed to lose control as a pitcher, lost your ability to control the ball? Yeah, you know, I threw a pitch. I threw an inside fastball, and when I threw an inside, inside fastball, it, it had a tendency to cut. And um, it really wasn't that bad of a pitch, but it cut and the catcher missed it. And I remember thinking, you know, to myself, man, I just threw a wild pitch on national TV. And I didn't think much of it. I brushed it away and, and just kept going. Well, a couple pitches later, I end up spiking a curveball, and then all of a sudden I start launching balls off the backstop. And I had no idea why. And up to that point, even before that game, I didn't have – I mean, I was nervous, but – the regular nerves you would have starting a playoff game, it wasn't as if I had some anxiety. I didn't even know what the word anxiety meant. Mm-hmm. Um, and when this was happening, I was so young, I really didn't understand what was going on. I remember saying to the media after the game, hey, it's a mechanical flaw. This will never happen again. I'll be fine. And then between that game and the next game of the playoffs where I started, I threw a bullpen session, and I was lights out, pinpoint mm-hmm. control. And I thought to myself, whatever that was, it's gone. I don't know what it was, but it's done. I'm done with it. It doesn't matter. And then we move into the game where I pitched against the Mets. Um, and then, the, you know, the game starts, and the same thing started to happen. And, and that's, after that game, that's when I knew, okay, there's, there's something wrong here, and it's not just a mechanical glitch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is a terrifying story. It's, it's terrifying here now, years later, to listen to you describe it. How did you cope when – you know, so the first time it was mysterious. Second time – you you said you knew something was going on. How did you cope with that, and how did you try to navigate your way out of it? Um, you know, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. The one thing that happened is we ended up losing to the Mets that series, and now we're into the off season. So my hope was, all right, I'm just going to get away from the game for a couple months, and you know, when I come back, I hopefully I'll be myself again and be normal. And you know, unfortunately, the thing that I found was once I did start to throw again, leading up to that, that was in 2000 when, you know, the pitch, first pitch started, and in 2001, leading up to that season, what I found is it was in deeper and darker than it ever was before. Mm-hmm. And, and once that happened, 
you know, even through that entire off season, Scott Boris, my agent, was trying to get me to talk to Harvey Dorfman, um, who was a sports psychologist that he had on staff. Um, and I just, you know, at the beginning, I felt like you talk to him. I don't need him. Um, I'm going to figure wow. this out on my own. I got this. And then once I started to play catch, I understood, um, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't know what to do. And, I, and it's not fixing itself. And, and then I made the call to, to Boris and said, hey, let's get connected with Harvey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of people would benefit from working with a psychologist. Yours just happened to be played out in more acute fashion and in front of millions of people what did you find it was like working with harvey what did you find most helpful about working with harvey Uh, i mean there's so many things um it's hard to narrow it down i mean really you know i I would say he changed my life for the better and and not just not just as a pitcher but just as life in general and then you know i I write about it in the book i come from a dysfunctional home and you know i didn't have the, the keys or the tools to to deal with these kind of types of things i was never taught them and he taught me all those things and and um you know, just I, he helps me overall. But and then when you move, if you just move specifically into sports, um, I mean, tremendous help as far as the mental side of things and being able to coach yourself and talk to yourself and understand uh, what to tell yourself when certain things are happening or how to pull back and slow every day, thing down and look at it and say, okay, this is where I'm at. This is what I need to do. Um, and this is how I'm going to attack it. Um, and, um, you know, I think for so long there's been such a stigma about, especially for men, about going to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And, I, and when I'm talking to young players, I always say, hey, you know, if you had an elbow injury, you wouldn't have a problem going to see the, the orthopedic to get it fixed. Well, if you if you have something going on mentally that you know you're not feeling good about or it's not right, why wouldn't you go help and try to help yourself in that fashion also? Right. We're talking to Rick Ankiel, former Major League pitcher and outfielder with the Cards and a few other teams, played 11 seasons in the big leagues. He's the author of a new book, The Phenomenon, Pressure, the Yips, and the Pitch That Changed My Life. Rick, we, we talk about a lot of sports on this on this show, and a, a few of the hosts here are pretty big baseball guys. And that's not necessarily me. I'm from West Texas. I'm, I'm born and raised in football. But I can appreciate that at its at its peak moments, the showdown, between a pitcher and a batter in baseball is really tough to beat. As sporting moments go, that is really tough to beat. But it's hard for others to even imagine the mentality and the psychology that's involved in those peak moments. How did you, how did you face those moments? How, how did you get back to your ability to do that? Because you worked through this. You came back and through. You pitched for another four years. All these, these psychological coping mechanisms you were developing with Harvey Dorfman, you put into place how did you get back to where you could do that you know it was just it was the entire process and it you know it was, it was a long process and and i wish you know i wish there would have been a magic word or, or something that would have just made it happen overnight but it's not that's not the way it went and really you know towards the end in 2004 when i came back and pitched respectively and um, successfully you know the thing about it was i over time i had learned how to control the anxiety so the so and what I mean by that is it didn't just go away. It was it was always there. It's just the fact that I learned how to f- control it. And, um, when you know, when my heart rate started to race or whatever, I had certain tools or certain things I could do to just to bring it to bring it back down and get me back into a place where I could compete. Because when I look back at, like, 2001, um, especially during that spring training, you know, the anxiety got so bad. I remember looking down at my hand, and I couldn't feel the ball. Um, so – you know, in those moments, it, it becomes impossible to compete or play or, or to throw a strike. I mean, you know, I can't even feel the ball, let alone knowing what to do with it. So now when you fast forward to 2004, 
um, through all these things and whether it was just time dealing with it or spent with it, um, plus the tools and mechanisms that I learned, I really just learned how to control the anxiety and it gave me the ability to be able to throw strikes at the time. It's remarkable. You, you write about having a, a moment where you're like, basically, I'm, I'm done. It's, it's, it's all of the effort that goes into that psychological control was robbing you of some of the fun and some of who you thought you were. And so you told La Russa and the Cardinals that you were done pitching. Um, how how long did it take you to pivot from that to, well, yeah, maybe I can play a little outfield? I mean, that's that's not a very common pivot. Not only is it not common, it's almost unfathomable. I mean, we were talking earlier that most people remember, a lot of people remember the whole incident with the, the playoffs and losing the strike zone. But I am particularly impressed by this transition from pitcher to outfielder. It's so uncommon. How did you even consider doing this, and who gave you that chance? Um, okay, so 2005, um, and you're exactly right. What it took for me to throw strikes mentally from the time I woke up to the time I went to sleep, I just felt like it wasn't worth it. So I walk in Tony's office, and, you know, we have that discussion. I say, listen, I can't do it anymore. Well, um, you know, an hour an hour later, I'm at home on my couch, um, and uh, I got a call from my agent, Scott Boris, and he says, hey, are you ready to go play? Saying, go play what? Is nobody listening to me? I just told you. I'm tired. And he says, no, go, go, go try to be an outfielder. And I was like, wait a second. I, I need some, let me think about this. I just fell out of love with the game. It took everything I had to walk in there and, and say I can't do this anymore and understand that I was giving up the only dream that I ever want. Um, and so I hang up. So now I'm on, I'm, I'm on my couch, and I, I think four or five hours go by. And I'm laying there, and I'm trying to visualize what this is going to be like, what it's what it'll take to make it back, the extra work, everything about it, the feelings, the emotions, everything that I think that's going to come with it. And then I let myself visualize myself hitting a home run back in the big leagues as an outfielder. Um, and once I once I felt that and had that vision, I picked up my phone and called Scott back, and I said, I'm in 100%. He called the Cardinals. Um, Walt Jockety, who was a general manager at the time, called me back and says, hey, we're in. Show up tomorrow and, and – uh, you know, you're an outfielder. And we'll get wait, you wait, 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 wait. Okay, okay. So it's it's one thing for you and your agent to promote you as an outf- outfielder, and the Cardinals maybe. What would convince them that this is worth worth doing? I mean, this, I mean, hundreds of major leaguers, pitchers who flunk out, if you will, uh, just are told goodbye. Um, how, what convinced the Cardinals to invest in this? You know, I didn't know this until I wrote the book and got into the book writing process of, I'd say two or three years ago. Apparently Scott Boris had spoke with the Cardinals a few weeks before that, and they were already on board for letting me try to become an outfielder. But it, the way the, what they felt like was that I needed if, if, and when I came to the point that I didn't want to pitch anymore, I needed to come to that decision on my own. Hmm. So um, they were already on board. I didn't know that they didn't play it that way to me. To me, I had no idea until, two years ago, like I just told you. So, um, you know, I, them, I think just being around me and seeing the athlete that I was, obviously, you know, I signed, I was drafted by the Cardinals when I was 17. And, you know, now it's, um, now I'm 25 when I made that switch. So they knew the athlete that I was. And, and I don't know if another organization would have gave me, given me the chance, but, it, you know, obviously I'm so thankful that I was with the Cardinals organization and that they gave me the opportunity to be back as an outfielder. Rick, you you had DH some as you were working your way back up through the minors after the initial pitching incident. So they had seen you bat a little bit, but you talk in the book about this 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 early at bat when you when you actually made it back to the bigs and this early home run. Can you walk us? It's such a great story. Can you tell us about that first that first round flipper? Yeah. yeah, you know, um, and it, it's you know I I'll never forget the day from the time I got the call that you're making it back to the big leagues to the the 
next morning when I walked into the big league clubhouse. And, you know, I think for some days in that moment, it would have been enough, the high fives and the hugs and the welcome back from my teammates and my, the coaches, the organization, everybody that was in the clubhouse. It was incredible. Um, and then we move, and then we fast forward into the game, and now I'm facing Doug Brokow, uh, and I'm in a 2-1 count, and he throws me a slider. And it, this, and it was it was a decent pitch, and I got barrel on it. So I knew this wasn't going to be an upper deck shot, but I knew I got enough of it that I think this is a home run. So now I'm running the first. I'm looking at the ball, looking at the outfielder, looking at the outfield fence, thinking to myself, please be a home run. <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as I've seen that ball clear the fence, I, I mean, I just had this explosion of emotions that went through me. I felt like I couldn't feel my legs. It was as if I was floating around the bases on a magic carpet. It, it was I mean, then the standing ovation, everything that came with it. I mean, everything that, that it took for me to make it back to the big leagues and everything about that moment. I mean, it, it was absolutely worth it. One of the most incredible, magical moments of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm actually, Rick, I'm actually sitting here looking at your career stats, and I'm actually seeing that actually in 2000, this is, again, pre the Yips days, if you'd like, you actually had a very, very good hitting season. Did you work on hitting while you were also actively pitching? Because you had, you know, I'm just looking at your stats here. You had 250 that season and 70 at-bats. You had two home runs. I mean, you had an ops of about 700 that season. For a pitcher, you must have been leading the league. Yeah, so did you? were you working on your hitting? I mean, again, this was four years prior yeah. to anything happening. Yeah, um, I was. But, you know, that was part of Tony LaRusso's thing, too. I mean, he, he understood that if a pitcher, one of our starting pitchers, or even the relievers, if you can get a base hit here and there and knock in a run, you potentially can win yourself a game. So one of his things was he always had the pitchers take BP. And even if we were on the road, we wouldn't always hit on the field. Maybe he'd be down in the cage. But, you know, he would always have the pitchers hit. And I love to hit. So, yeah, I mean, as far as BP goes, yeah, we always kept swinging it. And that was, you know, that comes from Tony LaRusso. That's one of Tony's things is we, I understand and I want you guys to understand that this could ten, potentially help us win a few games. And, as we know, in a baseball season, and it comes down to the pennant and the last games or whatnot, those those games matter. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is yep. also, besides a sports show, we're obviously uh, Wharton Moneyball. We're an analytics show named after Moneyball. Can you just maybe, I don't know if it was a big part of your career or no part of your career, but you've been around baseball now for t- 20 years or so. Um, what have you seen in the role of analytics? Did it play at all a role while you were actively playing, and what role do you kind of see it playing right now? Um, you, you know, it really started to come in, I felt like, towards the end of my career there. Um, it probably kicked me out of the game. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's definitely a place for it. I mean, there, you know, you can see the numbers and you see how things turn out. Um, you know, for me as a player, sometimes the, the shifts are a little strange to me. Not all. I mean, I understand some of them. Some of them are strange, but it is what it is. There's, there's definitely a part in the game um, – that it that it helps. I mean, it definitely helps quantify things, and uh, it's interesting. And I think it's fun. It's fun to look at it from both sides. The the analytics is obviously a big part of baseball, increasingly so. But also the psychology, the psychological game is a big part of baseball. And I, in in watching different teams in different leagues, it seems to me that that teams are they they invest more in in player psychology in baseball than any other sport. It seems to play a bigger role, and maybe it's because of this individual performance, this man against man, that is such a big part of baseball. What what do you hope to give to baseball players in this book? What do you hope that they get out of your experience? Well, if, if they're going through something that similar, obviously the yips or something like that, to know that they're not alone. And I hope that sharing my experience can inspire them and and help them get through some of the struggles that they're going through. 
you know, it's such a tough thing to deal with. And I remember even going through this um, when I received, and it wasn't just baseball, I received letters from all kind of walks of life of people saying that they went through something similar, whether it be a, an announcer or a writer or a violinist, a football, field, field goal kicker, um, you name it, just, just, I mean, all different walks of life. So in understanding that, you know, my voice can help people, um, then, it, you know, that's when I was 100% on board with writing the book. You know, and I remember reading Lance Armstrong's book about his battle with cancer when I was going through the throwing stuff and how much that inspired me. I felt like, man, he's dealing with cancer and I'm dealing with this uh, mental disease, so to speak. And, and it just it inspired me and it helped me. And, and I hope that my voice with my experience can do the same for somebody else. That's terrific. If you were to have one piece of advice to not just the baseball players, but as you say, people in any walk of life who are dealing with that kind of pressure, that kind of psychological challenge, what would that advice be? Um, that's kind of broad. What, what yeah, it, it, can you be? <laughs> what's the first step? I think this is a little very overwhelming experience for many people, and it's hard to um, imagine I, ever crawling all the way out. What, what would be the first step you'd suggest? Uh, I would say go get help. Mm-hmm. Don't don't be afraid of going to get help. I mean, it, it's you know. So just somebody else's perspective, a psychologist, psychiatrist, um, you know, see if they can help you. Uh, that would be my first step. That's great. And that, that's from a guy who basically didn't need help most of his life. He was on top of the world until until he faced that challenge. That's great. A great perspective. Rick, we really appreciate your taking the time uh, to be with us this morning. And we appreciate the book that you wrote. We wish you the best with it. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thank Have a great you. day. Absolutely. That's Rick Ann Keel, former major league pitcher and outfielder with the Cardinals and other teams in the major leagues. He played 11 seasons. He's the author of a brand new book, The Phenomenon, Pressure, The Yips, and The Pitch That Changed My Life. Reactions, guys, here before we roll off into break? Well, as the son of a psychiatrist um, and uh, also someone that's played sports, we've all had those moments, not as bad as him and severe. Uh, It's really inspirational. And I remember when he came back as an outfielder. And it's one of the things uh, I I will never forget him coming back in the first game he played as Mm -hmm. an outfielder. It Mm -hmm. really is an inspirational story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it was a delight to have him on. And, you know, it's it's nice to see uh, him trying to, one, talk about these things openly, but also connect it to other people's experiences because you think, here's this extreme thing. What could others actually learn from this? And he's like, no, actually, no, this is something general. And maybe teams should do a little bit of psychological testing and get some scores on those things, too. Mm-hmm. All right. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 Eastern. We're at the halfway point. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow. Shane will join us again, I don't know, by the end of the year or something. You can join us. Give us a ring, 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866, or email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We are also off the ground in the social media age, slowly getting our Twitter account moving. We post there pretty regularly, actually. You can follow us. You can Whatever the word is, yeah, follow us the right word for Twitter, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We we posted some horses last week that might have paid off for somebody. We can't. They might have, but always... they didn't. <laughs> well, if you did not uh, win play show, you would have. Yeah, some, some some somebody somebody got won some money off of looking at Lee. We are just off the phone with Rick and Keel. 
our first guest for the day, and we're rolling into our second guest segment. In the next half hour, we have Ben Hanson joining us. Ben is Chief Technology Officer for Modus. He's VP and Chief Technology CTO there. He's a biomechanics and wearable technology exec specializing in movement analysis using emerging technologies. We're going to find out what all of that means. Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Ben, uh, we've been hearing about your technology and we want to hear more about it. But first, where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Rockville Center on Long Island, New York. So we're just outside uh, Manhattan. All right. I don't know enough Long Island to know where Rockville Center is. I'm looking at some New York Just outside Manhattan, it would be like Bronx or Queens. Yeah, so it's about about maybe a 35-minute train ride. Ah, okay. What what has you in that particular location? We're seeing lots of Milwaukee, Midwest kind of stuff in your bio. What has you on Long Island? So I met these guys, Joe Nolan and Keith Robinson, back in 2012, and uh, they're Long Island guys. So they had started this company called Modus, and at the time, uh, their goal was to bring biomechanics to the masses. And when I was working with the brewers and met them, it was kind of a no-brainer to drop out of school and you know, start a new chapter in my life and join these guys. Drop out of school? Yeah. What, yeah. Drop out of your PhD program, no? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, let's right, If you're going to drop out, I guess that's the right program to drop out of, I yeah. suppose. Though we hate to lose a good PhD. We're, we're, we're fans of PhDs. How far along were, were you, and what were you studying? You know, I still had a lot of work to do, but I was, I was working with the brewers at the time, and we were studying forces in the UCL during pitch, uh, during, a, during a pitch or a throw using motion analysis and also some of the uh, excised UCLs from Dr. Roche who would oh, do all the surgeries. So we were trying to really push forward some of those predictive models with, with the Brewer's data. But, uh, so is that, is that were, were there many people studying that in graduate schools or were you carving out a little niche? I mean, I suppose, I mean, there's definitely a group of people around the, the country that are focused on understanding pitching mechanics with motion, motion capture, and I mean, there's, I'm certainly not, like, there's a lot of people doing it now, especially, but at the time, there was a few leaders. The Brewers had a great lab that did a lot of forward-thinking analysis, and so did Dr. Glenn Fleissig out of uh, ASMI. So I actually spent some time with him as well, and he's a great mentor of mine right now, and um, that's actually where I met Joe and Keith was when I was took a summer off to go work for Dr. Fleissig and Dr. Andrews that mm-hmm. summer. Mm-hmm. Ben, it's, it's surprising to me. It's a probably easy critique to offer from the sidelines, but it's surprising to me that everybody doesn't have a lab like this. I mean, what's more important than the health of your pitchers in Major League Baseball? Why is it that the Brewers would have the lab and be so far ahead of everybody else? You know, I guess there's a handful of very forward-thinking teams, and I think they're all out there searching for their, their magic formula but some teams are, are better geared at handling that, that scalability of technology. Um, and also, I think motion capture, the traditional lab, had a lot of, you know, you have to put markers on, you have to strip down to compression shorts, kind of like a real-life scene out of Bull Durham. And so what I think wearables have made this a lot easier now so that teams don't have to have their own motion capture lab. They can bring a company like Modus that has sensors now that can do pretty much all of what you could do with a standard motion capture lab. And for those that don't know what a motion capture lab is, it's that same technology they use to make video games or animations. Have you ever seen Gollum or uh, how the Matrix was filmed or any kind of video game? Um, that's what motion capture is. So the guys are wired up with sensors, or people do that. People have been doing it now for I don't know, fifteen years in golf as well to go get your swing analyzed, right? Yeah, same, golf, same golf's a very, very forward-thinking industry in terms of motion analysis. 
in, indeed, yes. So, Ben, uh, this is Adi Weiner. This is, uh, we've been hearing about these new technologies for now three years, but if you're just watching the baseball game, injuries are through the roof. So has there been progress? I mean, are, I mean, what have you discovered? Has is, is this data been leading a, in a direction that might actually end this almost epidemic? Most certainly, it's definitely starting to help. So we, we launched our first version of the wearable sleeve called Mthrow in 2014, and it was approved for in-game use in 2015. It's actually the first ever wearable product allowed in, uh, in Major League Baseball. So we now have three years of in-game data, and we're starting to really understand what's causing some of the injuries. Um, and we also have done a, a research study with the NCAA level where teams actually share their injury data with us. Sometimes you have to comb the injury reserve lists for MLB, and it gets a little dicey. But what we've found are kind of two mechanisms at play. One is uh, we, we think people need to essentially throw more to protect their arms at times. And we also think that um, teams are just making some uninformed decisions in regards to p- putting pitchers in f- fatigued scenarios. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ben, we need to hear about mo- more about both of those things. But first, yeah. can you explain the sleeve to us? Like what, what does this capture, and, and how does it affect, if at all, the throwing what is the What is the unit of analysis? I mean, what are you measuring? And are, and are teams, do they have access to the data real-time as it, as it goes through the game? So the, the rules for the approval were that the sleeve could only be used uh, after the game, so they can't have their okay. iPhones in the dugout to download it pitch okay. by pitch, but that might change. Mm-hmm. But the sleeve itself contains a, a, an, it's called an inertial measurement unit. It's a 3D sensor placed right below the UCL. Uh, and it has some, some sticky what, 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 inside. UCL, tell, tell us what the UCL is. Sure, so you've heard, you hear about Tommy John surgery. That's, that's the surgery done to correct uh, when someone tears their ulnar collateral ligament or their UCL. So when that UCL ruptures, usually due to, again, just buildup of micro tears and, and too much force, um, that, needs, that needs to be fixed. And so anyways, we, we can measure the direct forces on that UCL with a sleeve something called valgus torques. Every throw a pitcher makes, we measure the acceleration and the forces on that elbow. And we can tally up all the forces and start to measure workload on a pitcher's arm. Just so I understand, Ben, this Eric Bradlow, is the force, is the sleeve just a measurement device or is it also a preventative device? Or will there be a time where it could kind of serve both roles? Right now, it's, yeah, it's just a, a measurement device, but I'd say the analytics definitely offer some preventative benefits to the pitchers and the teams like just um, i hate to think of this it's not maybe not the right analogy but you know like a car can you can put a governor on a car like it can't go above 70 could there ever be a time where there's a governor on a sleeve where it just will not allow a certain force <laughs> of torque that could allow for damage i mean is that something where that or pitchers would just never you want need to a do push that back on kind of that. like an exoskeleton yeah. for yeah. pitchers. Yeah. Yeah. maybe someday yeah <laughs> but so uh, ben uh, is it uh, so this measures the force on the ucl how correlated with is that number with velocity? Very strongly. What we found is most pitchers that just throwing harder, you're putting more stress on your elbow. That's just a natural part of, of pitching. So what we've also found, though, is that some pitchers, if, you throw, if we both throw 100 miles an hour, one pitcher might put more force on their elbow than the other. So it's not across the board, but in general, the harder you throw, the more force you're going to be generating. But there's interesting residual variance. Yeah, so there are differences, but I think what it really boils down to is that workload management. So someone who throws at 100 miles an hour and at peak in a game, they might have a different progression or regimen during the week than someone else who also throws 100 miles an hour. I see. Those are the differences we, we were able to highlight, and 
really give insights to teams with. I see. So it's it, there is this heterogeneity, but you're not so much interested. So one, one approach you might take is, okay, this guy at the same speed impacts his UCL less, so therefore let's throw like him. Let's figure out the biomechanics and, and have our pitchers follow essentially the lower impact um, you know, mechanics. method. Mechanics. But you're saying, yeah, we could do that, but a bigger deal is let's understand the workload that people are going through and how to manage. Given the impact that a player has on his elbow, let's manage the the the, the training up to the game. Is that right? One hundred percent. So Ben, I just I was let me ask you a question about the pattern of velocity related of uh, building on Adi's question. If a pitcher were to throw five pitches at ninety and then five pitches at a hundred versus ten pitches at ninety five, which one would create at the end of those ten pitches more? Let's call it residual damage on the actual UCL. So the way we model it right now, it's based on something called daily load stimulus from NASA. And they did a lot of modeling of stress in bones. But when we look to try to do a ligament model, um, there's essentially this exponential factor. So, again, if you threw – I'll do uh, another example. If you threw 50 miles an hour, two throws, that does not equal the stress of one 100-mile-an-hour throw. That 100-mile-an-hour throw is much more workload on the elbow than those – Partial effort throws. Well, so just like for just a for a band, you could think of it. Yeah, it's just like a for a listener. I mean, they can right, pitch just, forever. Right, at just for our listeners out there, what uh, Ben has pointed out is that when I gave the example of five nineties and five one hundreds versus a bunch of ninety fives, I was assuming linearity. And what Ben is telling us is there's no way it's linear, and it's you know it's much harder, it's much convex. more stress. It's yeah, it's to throw a hundred yeah. than versus ninety. Yeah. Definitely. So we're talking to Ben Hansen. Ben is VP and Chief Technology Officer at Modus Global. They are working with biomechanics and motion sensing, especially through this wearable sleeve they have for pitchers. Taking us back to what you've found, you said two things. You said p- pitchers should throw more, kind of paradoxically you're saying they should throw more, and that teams are unwittingly putting them into fatigue situations. So now that we understand what the sleeve does and some of the basics, can you tell us about those two insights? Certainly. So we, we have been doing a lot of research around this growing body of um, something called acute and chronic workload. And it's been done with a lot of GPS devices in total body load, but we're applying it specifically to the elbow. And the physiological model says that a high chronic load or a high long-term average of, of workload is protective of injuries to an extent. You can think of it, let's talk about like running, for an example, running a marathon. So if you're going to run a marathon tomorrow, you're probably going to get hurt. But if you were able to build up a high chronic load of miles run over the next couple months, and then you go push yourself acutely to run that marathon, you're going to be able to withstand that load. Your muscles are going to be able to absorb the forces, and you're not going to be as fatigued easier. Uh, There's a similar mechanism at play with pitchers, where pitchers need to build up a high chronic load so they can withstand these big acute pushes when they go and pitch deep into games during a week, or if they're a reliever, they get up three, four days in a row. Um, And with that means physiologically is the forearm muscles, the pronators, if they have a high chronic load, they can tolerate more, they can tolerate fatigue better uh, or avoid fatigue better. So So, uh, let's just capture that detail because you ran through it real quickly. And we've had a few of these conversations on the show over over the years. You said something about a particular kind of muscle and pronators. Can you unpack that real quick? Sure. So the pronator helps protect the UCL so it can absorb force. Um, along that exact line, that axis of the ulnar collateral ligament. But as you start to fatigue, that muscle doesn't absorb the force, so the force gets imparted more to the UCL. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's bad. So the more force, uh, the, the UCL is operating pretty close to its maximum t- 
tensile properties. So if you're putting even more force on it, you're putting it at higher risk to have more micro tears. So, Ben, how do you even begin to spec the the right chronic load? I mean, this sounds like a really hard thing to say. Oh, yeah. So Average load. So you're talking about the training you do, do in, yeah, the, the, in the, the interim. The, the training, because the, so I guess the, the, what's the conventional wisdom? You, 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 have, you have a certain days that you don't throw at all, and then you do some long throws, and there's this conventional wisdom, and you're saying, yeah, that's probably wrong. How do you decide what the right thing is? Yeah, so definitely not just us sitting in a room saying we think, you know, you should throw this much. We, well, we've done it through uh, peer-reviewed research. So we've collected data now for three seasons with Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball players. And so we've just found normative ranges of what a normal, healthy pitcher does during, an, during their season. Um, so we use that to guide all of the analytics and machine learning we do to identify when a pitcher's in a risky zone. Okay, so, so hold on. Now, we, now that, you're talking up our alley here, but <laughs> here, you have to understand. So we, 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 of course, consider experimentation the gold standard for yeah. figuring these things out. It, I, and I'm sure there are some variation in practices out there, but you, but how are you using just normative standards to, to, to really figure out what goes on? Yeah. How do you use basically conventional wisdom to figure out how conventional wisdom is I wrong? Mean, you're, you're just, what sounds to me what you're doing is looking at the natural variation and trying to use a, an algorithm to sort of tease out who's healthy and who's not given the practices when, I mean, I, Kate hinted at it, but we, we would stress running an experiment. Randomize your pitchers, try two different strategies, and see what develops. Yeah. You know, all those hundreds of pitchers you have under your direct control. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, if you want to go in the approach MLB to allow us to do this, I'd, that'd be great. But I don't think they'd be happy if we said, uh, let's have your pitchers try a whole new regiment with essentially billions but, you know, of dollars M- in the line. MLB, but at is, MLB is one of the only, organiza- only sports out there that could actually do this because of their minor league system. I mean, we've said for years that they ought to be running more experiments in the minors. Yeah. Because that's, I mean, that's what you should be doing, right? Yeah. Developing players, but also learning. Yeah, no, that's that's a great forward-thinking view towards this. Um, and I guess just given the, the circumstances, we were able to do just observational research. Okay. But, yeah, experimental would be phenomenal. So what, if what you, what's the best you can say right now? Like, how far off is conventional wisdom? So take a, give, us, give us a starting pitcher who throws hard, and he's going to go what, guys? He's going to go four days between starts or something? Yeah. What, what do they typically do during those four <laughs> days, and how off is that from what you think is optimal? So I think I think intuition goes a long way with these coaches and the, these these teams, but I just think there's edge cases where they don't have eyes on every pitcher, and so they they apply these blanketed programs and hope for the best. But ultimately, you can make much better decisions if you measured the load and you quantified it. But generally, if you had a, a like a five day rotation uh, after your game, there's usually an unloading day. Um, again, they usually use heart rate variability to determine how much they should rest, and there's usually a, a, a day after where they push themselves a little bit. Um, then they have a loading day in the week with the weight room and also with a long toss and a bullpen session, and then another moderate unloading day before they get back into their, their, their fifth day, their, their next start. Mm-hmm. Um, how much workload goes on during that week we can quantify and we have a good understanding of. Um, I think the next thing we're interested in is within a day, what's that density, what's that uh, you know, time delay between throws. That that's something that we're really interested in quantifying. And where are you so getting that data from? It so comes from the sleeve, right? So, so, yeah, so these are people that are wearing the sleeve all, like all the time. Yeah. So teams that that clients of ours, they'll wear the sleeve all day long for practices and games. I see. So, 
So we're able to capture that regimen. So what you're basically saying is that most of the teams have a, a pretty standard protocol. But even though they have a standard protocol, the individual pitchers, they're not monitored, monitored precisely. And they, they, and they have control of what they do. And they're ends up being an enormous amount of variance. So when you put the sleeve on, but, but capture all, all the data. But all endogenous variance. Of course, That's endogenous the trouble. That's the trouble. That's right. But, but Ben, you, you mentioned... That? <laughs> they're, they're, it's related to the, you know, people are choosing what they do. And yeah. so they, 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 they're not the same people doing the different things. Um, ben, you talk about that conventional wisdom here is probably largely good. You know, and, and I've heard, you know, even even... Your pariahs, revolutionary thinkers like Sam Hinkie have said the same thing. There's a lot about conventional wisdom in coaching that is good. I mean, it's decades, right? So it stands to reason. But you're saying, but the edge cases, or maybe even more generally, heterogeneity suggests that there should be different regimens for different pitchers. This is something we've heard on this show from other sports. So, for example, the U.S. Snow and uh, Ski and Snowboarding Association has greatly improved its standing in international competitions over the last 10 years. And one of the things that they attribute that to is more heterogeneous training programs. That historically, you know, all slalom skiers had the same program, all, you know, downhill skiers had the same program. But they have used this kind of these physiological measures, these close measures like you're working with, to figure out how to tailor training programs to the individual skiers. And they've given that a lot of credit for the the improvements they've seen. That's fascinating. And I think that's probably what all sports are after, but individualization and heterogeneity is it's expensive. But fortunately, wearables and technologies for movement and biometrics is making that more affordable and more, more, more feasible to integrate. So what is, the, what is the reaction among the coaches and players to this stuff? I mean, on the one hand, new technology, new data, that sounds like a good opportunity. On the other hand, you're challenging the way things have been done. Yeah, certainly that's, that's an, always an uphill battle. And I think we've been at this now, again, since we launched in 2014. Uh, the perception has been much easier now. I think early on there was, there, was a, there was a big hype, and we had every team reach out, and then we found out that more, some teams were better to integrate technology than others. And I think now we're getting to a point where teams have the ability to scale technology internally. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably one of the biggest battles we, we face. Some teams just weren't ready to scale this or didn't have the coaches and the pitching coaches bought in, the people that work with the players or Mm -hmm. the players for that matter. Mm -hmm. Um, We find that transparency with data is also a a really big key feature for this. Say more about that. Transparency with data. So this means the players get to see it, the coaches see it, everyone sees it as it's happening? Yeah, and a better understanding of it. Like I think early on there was a perception that we were going to, oh, we're going to come in and predict who's getting hurt when in reality it's not an MRI into your elbow. It's, It's a tool to guide your workloads and to help you make better informed decisions. And just communicating that that piece to the players goes a really long way. So, it gets a lot more buy-in. Mm-hmm. So what are the units that you that you use to describe this to a player? So you, essentially what, you, what you're doing, if I'm speculating, is they have the sleeve, they work a couple days, whatever it is, and you can chart in a way that it's, it's, it's accessible to them how their workload has changed. Um, maybe there's a scaling that says this is you at your max, this is you where you've been. I mean, how do you present it to a player? The best success we've had with the, the best teams have been when we start day one, when they throw in December, early December, and they start their throwing progression, we'll have the players wear the sleeve, and we're able to, to give them that acute and chronic ratio throughout their entire progression. Because we know we have to get them from a period of zero chronic load to their in-season over a period of four months. So we start with just showing them their throw counts every the first couple weeks. And then we get into, 
all right, well, here was the stress of your throws during these, this week, and then, oh, here's the actual workload in Newton meters. And as we build the education and tell the story better, it's just that the players realize that this tool is there to guide them as they go. So they're not going too fast, too hard, mm-hmm. um, or too slow, or pushing themselves one week versus another too much. So we're talking to Ben Hansen. Ben is VP and Chief, Chief Technology Officer at Modus Global. He uh, began his work in biomedical engineering and then left to join Modus as they developed sleeves and motion tracking and presumably eventually you know, injury prevention, injury um, predi- prevention and prediction. Um, ben, the um, I just lost my question. Well, Ben, let me ask you a question here. Uh, so... What's the best kind of use case that you found? So, you know, could you point to something that says this is now done differently because of the use of Modus's wearable technology? Like, what, like when you go in around and I'm, I'm not even asking you just to sell Modus right now. I'm asking you what has been the biggest impact on the practice of which either training or players have done as a result of the technology and the data that's emerged? I'd say the most impactful piece that uh, – pitchers are getting out of monitoring their workloads on their elbow is in the preseason spring training period where they're going from a period of zero workload to that in-season workload and they need to make the most well-informed decision possible and also that's the period where most injuries are happening Um, at least most of Tommy John's are happening is that early time of the season. So Ben there's been a high profile case recently and it's probably not very uh, good for us to name names, especially you work with teams no, and players. We're not going to name names, <laughs> but if you're a hard thrower, what's your recommendation for the off-season regimen? Because some of these guys just want to throw harder and harder and build their arms up, you know, more and more and lift and all that kind of thing. It sounds to me like you would you might have a very different prescription. Yeah. So uh, the the research out there right now is limited more towards youth baseball that shows. You know, pitching over 100 innings or pitching more than eight eight months out of the year puts you at risk for injury, more of like a high chronic load. At the major league level, it's it's much less researched. Um, all I would say is we could give you some tools to, to monitor that acute and chronic ratio to make sure that if you are trying to improve your arm speed and off-season off, off time, you do it with, with technology and with um, informed decisions. So exactly what they should do, you know what's that chronic load in the off season? That's on a that's up to the pitcher and what kind of risk they want to take. But if they're going to do it and they're going to push themselves, again, they should do it with with technology and monitoring to make sure they're not overdoing it one week or another. And I know this is probably speculative, but do you think there's a limit to how hard a guy should try to throw, given the kind of and that you're talking about acute load essentially, given the chronic load that would have to be built to protect it do you think there's a natural limit so at some point that you, you you don't want these guys to try to throw harder oh man that's that's a tough question the velocity is is key right now everyone wants to throw harder um i would say it's it's an inherent thing that people are going to want to do but again it just comes down to training smarter and i think trying to understand that density and and if you are going to push yourself to be a max velocity guy again, just be smart about how you train during the week and in the off season, do you think that there's some something too? What we've been hearing a lot about is that the major league baseball players are actually not throwing enough; that they're being too babied. Is there is there something to that? I think some pitchers probably are. You know, we have that that 100 some whatever for whatever reason we have a hundred pitch limit. We have inning limits in a season, and for some guys, it's probably really good for them. But for others, it might be placing their chronic loads in a really low position, so that when they do go push themselves acutely. Mm-hmm. That could be causing the injury. Mm-hmm. 
So again, it's not just, I'm, I'm just against these blanketed homogenous rules. I think there needs to be more individualization. And like you guys said, more heterogeneity. And when it comes to training a player, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ben, we have a caller, Andy from New York. Welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Really, really fascinating uh, topic. Uh, question for you is this. Uh, this is a, uh, a old pitcher who hurt his shoulder many years ago. Uh, I was wondering if the sleeve uh, either has or will have a, uh, a combination of elbow and shoulder sensors so you can kind of get a sense of what the combination of pitches, you know, curveball, fastball, slider, whatever, is there something there where there's a correlation between the ratio of the types of pitches, the torque, the load, and uh, injury patterns? Andy, thank you. Appreciate the question. Ben? Sure. Hey, Andy. Uh, so to, the first part of the question was multiple sensors, and that's, that's definitely something we have going right now. We have a few teams piloting our five-sensor shirt that has sensors on the, the forearm, the upper arm, the trunk, the pelvis, and the lead foot. And that allows us to get a lot more measures than just elbow torque. So, yes, we're able to measure shoulder torque, um, abduction forces on the, on the shoulder, as well as measures of the kinetic chain. Um, and then in terms of pitch types, um, that's a, an interesting question. I mean, we, we found that pitchers on, a different, on an individual basis may put more stress on certain pitch types than others. So someone may put more stress with a curveball uh, some pitchers may put more stress with the fastball. We find generally the fastball is the most stressful pitch type for a pitcher. Mm-hmm. But, again, it's down to that individualization. So, again, I'm really against these blanketed rules of saying everyone who throws a fastball is the most stressful pitch. But the beauty of the sleeve and any kind of technology that you can measure this with is you can measure it. So that's, that's what we'd recommend if you want to understand what's the most stressful pitch type for you. Got it. Ben, just, just wrapping up here, um, as you look at the field, where, where do you want to see the wearable tech field go? Where do you think it's going? Where do you, where do you want it to go? So I think in the next, oh, man, probably less than five years, I think every piece of clothing that a player wears in any sport is going to have sensors embedded in it. Mm-hmm. It's going to be ubiquitous. You're not going to really know it's there. The battery life will be better. Um, and then there will be a few companies that know how to do something meaningful with that data and how to prescribe training load. So, where do I see wearables going? I think at every level, whether it's the professional pitcher or the Little League baseball player, there's going to be technology there to guide their training. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Well, we wish you the best with that, and um, there's a lot of good that can come from that. So we'll be keeping our ears and eyes open. Hope to talk to you more about it down the road. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, guys. Thank you for having me on. Great. That was Ben Hansen, VP and Chief Technology Officer at Modus Global doing work with uh, Major League Baseball and collegiate pitchers. Do you know how big this market is going to be? You're going to sell a shirt to a 12-year-old <laughs> and an, app, an iPhone app yeah. to tell you how much load you're getting. It's immense what's yeah. coming. Yeah. Data never hurt anybody. I, I think this is and, it's going gonna, it's gonna to filter down, as Adi said, yeah. all the way to kids starting at 10, 11, 12 years old. And the jobs for the people who can analyze that data, they're there, well, folks. Well, that's the big question because there's far more data than we can 
we can make sense of right now. Mm-hmm. And that's going to continue to be the case for a while. And you're going to visualize it, present it, just basic stuff. I mean, you did mention the word machine learning, but I think that's the role of that kind of stuff is overstated. It's really in the in the collection and the presentation, and the presentation, and the visualization. And that's why data. I loved also Andy's question about, so what if you put a sensor on the elbow and now the shoulder and everything else, now you've got these correlated things and how they interact with each other. Yep. I think that's the mil- literally the million dollar question. Mm-hmm. And you know, if, you, if you're trying to make sense of the industry, a big question is where that happens, who the players are, what is the role of the team, what's the role of the league. It raises all kinds of privacy and ethics issues around Big who, issue. who owns the data. Actually, Ben said something very carefully. He, he just kind of snuck it in there. No, we're not trying to tell the pitcher we're going to predict the probability of injury or anything because then all of a sudden you're right my data is the team now has my data which means there's going to be an economic discussion about this data so you're right there's going to be a big issue on privacy but that has to be just rhetoric right because of course that's part what part of what they'd be doing of course and, and they protect their as, investment. You, as you say first stage is just yeah. describing it visualizing it, helping people understand what's going on but second stage is okay let's use those data to predict what's going to happen but i next. do think i really think that the, the real evolution will be when someone discovers that experimentation is the only way yeah, to really right. do it they, they've it's, got it's miners, shocking they've got the miners. come on man yeah. give us some experimentation all right that has been three quarters of wharton moneyball we still have a quarter to go come back and join us after the break Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. This morning, it's Cade, Eric, and Adi. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday. We're also replayed a few times over the course of the week. Five times, I believe. If you're catching us one of the replays, thanks for listening. Drop us a note. Email us at businessradio at cirrusxm.com, businessradio at cirrusxm.com. We do pick those up. If you're listening live, give us a shout, one eight four four wharton one 942 7866 Matt Johnson there waiting for your phone calls and emails. Danielle Bruno on the soundboard bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour, as she always does, rolling into the last quarter of the show. Guys, there's still lots of sports. We talked a lot of baseball. talked a little derby up top, and we've been baseball nonstop for the last hour and 15 minutes. There are other sports going on. For example, NBA playoffs. NBA playoffs. Yeah, I mean, again. Did you watch the game last night? I did. I watched it, too. I did. I I watched watched it at the bar. So Rocket Spurs, they (laughs) went in 2-2. They go to overtime, and the the Spurs pull this thing out. Yeah, what what it taught me about the, the two teams was, and they talked about it after the game, James Harden had to have been ridiculously fatigued. I've never seen so many bad plays from one individual, both at the end of regulation, where he really didn't even get a shot off, and then in overtime where he turned the ball over three straight times. Um, it's just he was exhausted. He just, you know, it was even just, he didn't couldn't even, forget the shots that he was taking. It was the turnovers and just... It was just too much reliance on one single player. And, you know, probably in the most pivotal... I mean, Houston probably should have won that game. Um, that would have given them a 3-2 lead. They're now down 3-2. And, you know, it's one of those times where one minute in sports... I hate to put it this way, like it's going to be momentous or anything. But they could have gone to the Western Conference Finals or increased their, changed their likelihood. And that's the kind of one minute in sports that can change the route of a franchise. Because now they're saying, all right, now we're not even... No, I'm just saying, no, I'm franchises... Wow. Make these decisions. Be like, let's suppose they lose in this but round. But you can't. You can't. This is the thing. No, you Good can't franchises do that. No, can't I, overreact. I understand that. And we would think with Houston and their pedigree, yeah, they won't, they're right. likely not to overreact. But it really is like, well, 
We can talk about one minute in sports. Let's imagine Cleveland last year had lost the NBA Finals. Then they would be going into this year as a potential three-time straight loser. So one minute in sports changed things for positively for Cleveland this year. And it just that's the way sports is. But yeah, I mean, yeah, last night's game, I was watching this, and the and the tension was just immense. So it, we 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 there may be a theme in NBA the last few years that these teams that only have the one player, unless your name's LeBron James, don't seem to be able to get it done. So Westbrook can't carry the team as nope. great as he is. Nope. Harden Harden's having this phenomenal year. Can't carry the team. You just can't put that much of the load on one player at the end. Well, that's the that the amazing thing about LeBron, and maybe at some level he's vindicated in the sense he has said his entire career, it's not about me taking the shot, it's about me making the right play. And so what LeBron James does is Kyrie Irving may take the last shot, uh, Kevin Love may take the last shot, Kyle Korver may end up taking the last shot, and LeBron James is happy to live with it. Now, he will make the right yeah. basketball play. Tell me what you think, as, as more expert than I on these matters, the gap between LeBron James and the rest of his supporting staff, how does that compare to, say, Harden or Westbrook and their supporting staff? It's a, that's a great question. Um, I think LeBron James has got a perfect supporting staff for who he needs. Here's what I mean by that. He's got Kyrie Irving who is a wizard with the basketball and can go on offensive streaks like no one else. And continues to develop as a player. And can, Right. He's getting better and better. He's only, I think, 25 now. He's just 25. And so Kyrie Irving is the perfect complement because actually LeBron would rather pass the ball than shoot the ball. He's shooting almost 60% from the field, though, LeBron right now in the playoffs. He'd rather pass it, and Kyrie Irving would rather shoot it. So that works well. Um, Kevin Love, while he hasn't played phenomenally great, he can hit the three. He averages... 10 rebounds a game. So, yeah, he's got a much so better... He's got, su- a, he's he's got, got a great support. supporting cast. So much let's, let's better let's than Harden Westbrook. Let's turn our attention to something we've talked about every week for the last month or so. 538 is still forecasting uh, f- 3 to 4 to 5%. No, it's, it's up to, it's up to 5%. It's up to 5% percent now chance. That, that Cavaliers are going to win the title. Now, and, and here's Vegas the ma- has it at about 25%. Right, so here's the, the math I don't gap. get again. I'm gonna go- to be clear, 538 says the Cavs only have a 5% chance. They have been long on the Warriors Warriors for a long have an time. 84% chance. Oh, my God. 84% chance. Now, just to, just to think about the math. Again, I love doing this envelope math here on Wharton Moneyball. Let's imagine the Cavs are a 70% favorite to go to the NBA Finals. Let's even say 50%. Well, 0.5 times 0.1 gives you 5%. They're saying the Cavaliers, the defending champions who are 8-0 in the playoffs, who are very close to setting the record for the all-time most consecutive wins in the playoffs. They're at 11. 13 is the record for the most consecutive wins. They've won 11 straight playoff games this year and last year. 538 is suggesting they're at best, let's say, 50%, 10% to win. That's I mean they or, think they, the Warriors are State, well, much better. Ninety ninety doesn't even get you nope. to the percentage of Golden State. Point nine point nine. So how do, how do you explain that? The, we, we have talked on the show the last few weeks about the fact that the the Cavs basically kind of coasted through the regular season, and so if the if five thirty eight is drawing on power rankings built during they that are. time, that's what. So this is what Audie and I talked about last week on the show. As you know, Cade um, uh, five thirty eight uses what's called the ELO model. Actually, they call it the Carmelo model. It's a, a modified ELO model, um, which means Team A plays Team B. Team A has a strength. Team B has a strength. The difference in their strengths helps determine who's going to win. They used the last, like, I guess you most 
people. Sure, they used the last 15 games of the season, 20 games of the season, where the Cavs were 8-12. and 12. Well, the ELO strength of the Cavs is, is low. It's brought down now, by those so games. So how does, how does Carmelo change that in any way? Does it? It does. So they bring in things like injuries and other stuff like that. Okay. So we've talked about three of the four series. The fourth is tied up 2-2 Celtics and Wizards. Are you all interested in this? Very one? interesting. I mean, it's interesting to me is this, this Isaiah Thomas character. Yeah. Who um, was? I just read recently that he was the last pick in the draft, and 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 he's and he's a star, mm-hmm. and and how unusual that is in basketball, and that's what I wanted to hear from you well, guys. How unusual is it? From I mean, a, sec- a second, last round, second round picks in general don't do don't do much well in basketball. Let me let me make uh, two comments about the Celtics Wizards series. Uh, remember our prediction four weeks ago, Adi, when you and I talked about it. I said mm-hmm. the Cavs tanked on purpose because they didn't want to play the Wizards. Until the, potentially the finals, they have no. They wanted to play the Raptors and the. They wanted to play those two teams, so I, they're happy being the two. Now, That's, why was that? Well, if you look at their regular season record, they were two and one against the Wizards, and one of those games they went to overtime, and one they got blown out by thirty. They did not want to play the Wizards. If possible, they'd be happy if the Celtics. So they want the they were Celtics undefeated against the Celtics. Yep. That's number one. Um, number two is, you talk about Isaiah Thomas, I'm going to tell you my story again, which I've told many times here on Martin Moneyball. Someone has to shoot the ball. Let's not put Isaiah Thomas into the NBA Hall of Fame. Someone has to shoot a bunch of shots. And let me give you a prediction. The Celtics are going to score points. The team. Someone has to shoot. Let's not make him out to be this phenomenally great player. He's You're saying great. he's the only offensive p- threat on the that, team? Yes. Who el- name one other player. Name one other player. You guys won't follow basketball as much as I do. They're name po- one other post. player. The big, the big man. Uh, the big man of the post. It was with the Hawks forever. Al Horford? Horford? Yeah. Okay. So Al Horford can score. Al Horford doesn't look to score that much. He's a 15 to 18 point a but game scorer at this point. But still, they're the second best team in the East. I mean, you're saying that someone I'm has just... to shoot. He's got to be better than just your average shooter. He's better, but he, let's not put him in like an MVP. He's not that <laughs> okay. great. Well, no, someone he's not has MVP. to shoot. All right. Let's skip over to the NHL where we have also two series wrapped up and two series pretty even. In fact, we've got two Game 7s tonight, fellas. The Caps and the Pens are playing Game 7 in Washington. What do you think about this? This has been... We're going to need is, Shane to call in and give us some insight. Well, I, I don't have a ton of insight except to say I did look at the remaining four, the, the two teams that are through and the two series that are left. So just to remind everybody, the Penguins and the Capitals were 1-2 and two in the East. So these are our two Titans that are still in there, yeah. and they're at 3-3. Three, three. The Capitals had a, one of the best seasons in the history. Nashville, who's in the Western Conference Finals, was the bottom team to make it. They're in the eighth spot. And we always talk about this. The eighth spot in basketball rarely makes it to the conference finals. They rarely the, make it past the first series. Right. Ottawa, who's, who the Penguins, Capitals, winners will play, was sixth in the East. Yeah. And then the Ducks and the Oilers, who are playing another game seven, they're the third and fourth in the West. So I'm just trying to point out that people have always said hockey is less, but the regular season matters even less, and the data continues to seem to suggest it. We yeah. might get, we're going to get one, one or two seed, and we have an eight seed, a six seed, and probably a four seed yeah. Yeah. in the fa- conference finals. So I, this is just a, a strong recommendation. Anytime you can watch game seven playoff hockey, you should, and we got two of them tonight. And if by any chance either of those games go to OT, you need to stop what you're doing and turn on the TV. Why is that? Game seven, overtime hockey, sports don't get better than that. And and I am not the only person that feels that way. It just doesn't Very intense. get better. I, I know yeah. you guys are going to ridicule and tell me the answer is no. In the last five years, the Penguins 
have played. Adi's already looking at me skeptically, and you should. <laughs> they've played five game sevens on the road. They've never lost. Now, does that mean <laughs> dun, dun. does that mean anything <laughs> for today's game seven on the road? They've got players. Let's say I'm making this stat up. Let's say there's a third of their players that have participated in those game sevens. So, 50-50. So I <laughs> say so you no. put not Nothing. you're not even not moving. even a so drop. You're, you're even willing to say fifty that home ice won't even really matter at this point. At this point, momentum. The Capitals have won the last two games. That's not worth anything either. I, I you know. My prior is no, I don't have much hockey experience. But if you had to move off 50-50, it would be very Very slight for home ice Mm -hmm. or for momentum. Not for momentum, for home ice. So for 3-1 to 3-3, you would give the 3-3, the team that won the last two, I don't know, 52-48 or something, you would give them some Barely anything. The home team has an advantage, right? And they had the hockey. And you've pointed out, they had the better regular season record, too. So if if we put anything on that... But you remember, this was the discussion we had two weeks ago on the air, was the guy who was doing the analysis of tennis. Like, once we're into the tiebreaker and a certain part of it... I hate to put this way. Regular season record goes out. I'm one in the world. You're 73. It doesn't matter. We're at this point where we have enough data to say at this moment in time, we're matched. We're equal. And so at this point, does regular season record matter between the Capitals and the Penguins? Well, that was, like, that was is his that assumption, Does that affect your way. prediction of 50-50? It, uh, you know, the only reason it wouldn't is that they had one and two. This is the best record and the second best. So, but if it so was one versus similar. eight, this yeah, would sure. definitely, you would still put so a lot if, of weight if, on the prior. If one versus eight would still matter, then I'm going to let one versus two matter some. But very little at this point. How, tell me about the home advantage effect in know. hockey. How does it compare know. to basketball, baseball? I, football. I actually don't. I've never. I, there is a you study, know, obviously. I've we, never that's seen one a home thing we need study. to have in our in our in our toolkit. Which sport has the biggest home and home field advantage, and which one's the least? Yeah, I'll take, we need I'll to take NFL. I think you probably would. Okay, so we've got these. This is playoff season in those two sports. A lot of fun. Again, watch those game sevens, or at least keep an eye on the score. If by any chance to go to overtime, you got to drop what you're doing and go watch one of those games or both. Uh, other sports. Guys, uh, this interesting marathon thing that was going uh, on. So Nike, Nike yes. tried to break the two-hour mark in the in a marathon. Yes, this past so, so the world's record in a marathon is around two hours and about three minutes, just a bit shy, of, uh, just a bit lower than two hours and three minutes. And two hours is like a, is like this magical mark, like, it's the, like, four the, four, it's like the four minute what mile, like ten seconds was in the hundred. But it's also an enormous distance, in, if you think about it, in terms of what human beings are capable of just going how much faster can they really go and nike hatched this plan to create a race under perfect conditions with the world's greatest runner and see if they could do it so they took three of the world's greatest runners together and they uh, ran and they were they were flanked or surrounded by a rotating team of drafting world's you know great marathoners who created almost a v-shaped a wind tunnel for them so that they would be able to and it matters i mean you think sure. that, that in i mean obviously in, in in auto racing and bicycle racing draft is important but the speeds that the runners are going it still has why didn't they just run it downhill Good ah, Lord. okay so they did it on a track that was flat and 52 degrees i was no just about wind to say i would have predicted Italy, the temperature the reason i'm saying this right. is i've done an analysis of optimal men's marathon times and it's between 52 and 55 it's an inverted u right. which means any colder, colder no good any hotter no good there's so a minimum at between 52 and 55 this is well well known and been established in many published this is a lesson in, in variance one the, the predominant factor which predicts marathon time is not the individual runners maybe the order i know is. what it is it's 
Well, I'm, I'm going to predict it's in a given marathon. In a given marathon, altitude. it's the number of runners. It well, is the. It's, no- a, it's also the temperature. I mean, no, no, I know temperature. I'm just saying a, a race with fifty top. You'd rather have fifty coin right. flippers than ten coin flippers. Oh, good. Yeah, so sure. it. I've done this analysis. If you want to predict the in, the winning <laughs> time in a marathon, all this marathon analysis. What the well, heck? that data is available. If hey, you want it's to fun pre- stuff, it's fun this stuff. Is what we do. <laughs> Actually, you just, play golf. You would appreciate this. Maybe I'll come in. I won't do it this year because my son's going to be there. But I have a three-hour lecture I give on learning statistics through sports and games of chance. Mm-hmm. And one of the analyses I go through is men's versus women's marathon times. But as we talked, you asked Kate about endogeneity earlier in the show. Certain races, the best runners don't run. So that's right. one of the challenges of saying temperature is better. Because if a marathoner, let's say the top world person knows that they could run a marathon next week in Sao Paulo, but it's going to be 85 degrees, they'll choose not to run it because they know they'll have a bad time and bad it would time. burn them out. But so what Nike tried to do is essentially get all the factors that actually have a big impact on the outcome at optimal conditions. This is great. So they created a team of runners. I, I don't like. It. I don't like the. I don't like that the pacing, windbreaking thing. I don't that's want, right. That's, that's, well, that, that know, sounds asterisky to me. It is asterisky. It doesn't oh, count as a record. No question, it doesn't count as a record. They wanted to try to see what the limit of human ability is, at least with current training, and they were they were not able to do it. They came close, two hours and twenty five seconds, and it and the pace he maintained the pace to, for thirty kilometers, and then that's when he started to lose seconds. And in the end, this is the classic cliff that someone hits at the nineteen mile yeah. mark. I mean, this has been you know I hate to say it, this has been known. That's when you hit the wall. The wall. That's when you can no but longer he, perform. He just missed by twenty five seconds, which means just one second better per mile, per mile would get you underneath. It. Okay, so in defiance of these walls and in defiance of these, you can no longer perform. We saw John Daly win a tournament last weekend. Well, I was so happy to see this. Um, it was a Champions Tour. Let's be clear. Which is, I, I had a frantic thirty seconds of trying to figure out whether he won a PGA event. Well, this is a PGA event. Know, it's a senior like a, like, PGA <laughs> event. It's a senior PGA event. He hadn't won a tournament in thirteen years. Um, it's the so it's like an old timers game. Or yeah, so this? you have to be at least fifty. Uh-huh. You have so I'm eligible. Uh, you're eligible I'm now. Eligible now. <laughs> he's yeah. becoming eligible soon. <laughs> um, so he's he won for the first time in thirteen years, and it was the longest gap between consecutive wins on the you know if you want to call this really that's it's a weird thing crossing consecutive wins. I'm not saying from gap. first to the last win of someone's career. Because, you know, people have had 30-year gaps. Like, Nicholas won his he last term. consecutive. So I would think that you would see this a lot, where guys don't win on the regular tour for years, and then they win as soon as they get to the senior tour. Is, look, how, how much does the competition fall off? Well, it's a great... Go- golf is not a game that you just can't play anymore after 40. Right. No, no, no. It's a great question. Um, and what they also do is, of course, you don't play from the same length so mm-hmm. they, you know, they shorten up the tees. It's not obvious that it's any easier. It's three rounds yeah. instead of four. It's not obvious. It's, it's any easier. It's funny. I didn't. Yeah, know they that. only play three That's rounds. Great. But it's not obvious. It's that much easier to win a yep. senior tour event. The field size is basically the same. These are all people that are. Matter of fact, you could. These were very. They're self, not self-selected to qualify. You most of the time have to have won on the regular tour. So a lot of you could argue there's more championship pedigree even on the senior so, tour. So Eric, you know, in preparation for his debut on the senior tour did daily like you know really tighten up the regime did he go out and get in shape is he a new man 
I can only say by visual inspection, um, he looked bigger than ever. Big John Daly looked big. Big John was, Daly looked big. I was shocked when I saw the pictures. I mean, this, he won. He won in the condition that he's in, which is remarkable because, oh, my gosh, he has not been at the – he's not been away from the training table. He's not been at the training table. He's not been away from the regular table. Or the buffet table. Um, what does jo- it say about golf, folks? What does it say about his ability? I like to take it the way Cade's going with it, which is, could you imagine how great this man could have been um, if he had actually trained significantly for the sport? He's got yeah. two majors, though. When he was, when he was a lot more than playing some as a younger man, he was not training hard? Is that oh, the no. Gosh, no, famously no. not. Famously okay. not. No. Burned, burned a lot of talent here. Because there are a lot of professional athletes, particularly in baseball, who do carry quite a few extra pounds. But yeah. nevertheless, they were tremendous athletes, and they worked out, and they were... No, not him. Okay. So uh, another athlete coming back from a, from a break and performing at pretty high levels, Maria Sharapova. She had a... A break. A, yeah. a, she, she, a, an imposed an exile imposed, for yeah. a little while because of uh, violation of the... Of she took the, like a, a, a drug that it allows the body to use oxygen better. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't banned, and then it became banned. And she had been taking it for 15 years, and she claimed she didn't know that this ban had changed. And they said, yes, you did. And so she got banned for, I think, 15 months. So she had a match against uh, one of the top women's players in the game right now, Bouchard. Eugenie and, Bouchard. And she has uh, been an outspoken critic of Sharapova. How did this thing go? Well, Jeannie Bouchard from Canada won the match. Uh, she won it in three sets. It was a very two-hour-plus contested match. And, you know, then you start to ask yourself, I hate to put the way the statistical, I don't know if it's a statistical question or not, did the extra motivation is what, because Bouchard had never beaten Sharapova before, <laughs> did the extra motivation, was that what drove her to win the match? And, of course, we can't know no. that. But I'm just saying she but, had not beaten her prior. Right. But it's interesting because we've, saw, we've seen in athletes that the break, not such a bad thing. And, I mean, A-Rod came back after his break, seemed to be a new baseball player for a short time. Um, uh, Serena Williams, I think her career has been extended by her Well, her or let's break just talk took. about the number one player in the world, in my view, right now, Roger Federer. His he, break, He yeah. injures his knee, gets some surgery, didn't play for eight months, and he's won every tournament he's played. He won yep. the Australian Open this year for his 18th major. So maybe the break extends your career. Mm-hmm. We're in a long break away from the NFL, but yet there are new data out. You've got something you I, want to I share? I could not believe. So there are... You, it'll, be easy, it'll be easy to guess the teams. <laughs> we There's, saved the last that's three fine. minutes. Tell me what is it. What's the issue? All right. There is one team, the Patriots, that are right now are favored in every game they're playing this season. They're Why fav- wouldn't that be if they're the best team? Isn't that well, typically happens? Home in field. Home field. Home, home field is home enough. Field. Right, right. And there's a team that is the underdog in every game they're playing this season, and that's Cleveland. So I just thought it was interesting. All those draft picks made no dent on their... Not yet. Uh, not yet. It takes a while. Not it takes a while. Yeah. I just thought it was interesting that we have one team favor in every game yeah. and one okay, team that's an uh, underdog in every but game. But how you often does that happen? I mean, as long as there's... If any year there's a clear favorite, you'd imagine no, that but that think, would happen. No, but I think the, the home, home field team in is football two and a half has points? how many points? Three, three. points? Three points. Mm-hmm, okay. More or less. So that means three, three and a half points. So they're power Two and a half, three. Two and a half, three. So that would basically mean that they would have to be, you know, the delta between the first and second team 
would have to be that large, which I, looking at the not first second, they have to be they may not play the second team or the third team. So it says something about their schedule as well. It could say something about their schedule, and then the worst team. I guess yeah, maybe it happens more than I'm thinking it should happen. Maybe the, uh, the probably, worst. Team I think it probably is, does, particularly with the preseason. We don't know that yeah, much. Preseason is a part of it because yeah. I, I, I'm going to bet against that holding once we get into the season and we have real lines. We, yeah, when things really well, change. I just thought it was given. It's, so interesting yeah. though, from from is that even though Brady's approaching his 40th birthday. Or passing it, or near it, or something. This year, <laughs> this is supposed to be the cliff, and that's not being worked into the, or at least the preseason. Do you believe odds. in cliffs? Well, we don't, generally, uh, a you know, you know what? No, cliffs, no right? but when it comes to aging, if you had to point to one particular place where I believe cliffs matter, it's in the aging curves. And hmm. in quarterbacks and football. And quarterbacks and football. Oh come on, these guys play forever. George Blanda, man. Your yeah. arm just can't do it. I mean, look at baseball. Major league pitchers cannot throw fast at age 38, 39. I'm looking I can't the, believe that that this is in the same issue for a quarterback. As much as I hate the Patriots and I hate Tom Brady, um, I'd like to see him play great for another five years. I'd like this myth of the 40-year-old Cliff to yeah, be broken. I'm, I'm short Cliffs. I'm, I'm not buying You're short. All right, I'm right. long Cliffs. I'm <laughs> long Cliff. All right, guys. That has been another two-hour episode of Wharton Moneyball. We're here every Wednesday morning. Come back and join us. We're going to go 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. If, uh, if, if, if we want to thank Matt Johnson for doing the producing this morning, Danielle Bruno for manning the soundboard. Our best to Shane Jensen, our fourth colleague who's out traveling. And a big thanks to my co-host, Audie Weiner and Eric Bradlow. We'll be back next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.